You're listening to Nursing Review Radio. I'm health editor Dallas Bastian, and I'm joined by Associate Professor Steve Clark from Charles Sturt University's School of Humanities and Social Sciences to discuss what constraints or requirements there should be to conscientious objection to vaccination. Thank you for joining me, Steve. Well, thank you for having me. In unpacking this issue in a recent paper you had published in Bioethics, you drew comparisons between conscientious objection to vaccination and to that of military service. Uh, Why did you decide to explore the the issue using this analogy? I should just say first, this is joint work with Mm -hmm. my co-authors Alberto Giubilini at Oxford and Mary Jean Walker now at Monash. Um, And the reason is that the phrase conscientious objection comes up in a great range of different contexts. And um, we uh, looked at this as part of an Australian Research Council Discovery Grant on conscientious objection and conscience in healthcare. And what we really decided is it was really helpful to um, think about how uh, conscientious objection has played out in different contexts and see if we can uh, learn how it, how it should be uh, applied in uh, new contexts. Now, conscientious objection in the military is where you have the longest history of discussion of the topic, and there's a, there's a well-established uh, uh, set of protocols for how to deal with a conscientious objector. And the thing that's really striking about this is that the conscientious objector to the military um, it's perfectly permissible to be a conscientious objector when, say, you're um, conscripted to the military service, but you're expected to make a uh, commensurate um, contribution to the community, be that working for the military in a non-combat capacity or doing some kind of uh, community service that's not associated with the uh, military. And um, so we thought this idea of uh, making a commensurate uh, contribution to the community would apply very well in the vaccination case, particularly because someone who is a conscientious objector to vaccination imposes a risk to herd immunity, so they impose a risk on the community. So it seemed that they acquired, therefore, a commensurate duty to make up to the community for imposing that risk on the community. What are some of the potential avenues uh, for that uh, contribution? Well, when we came down to working out how the contribution might be worked out, uh, we were presented with a problem. And the the problem is that um, different diseases involve very different sorts of risks. Um, so, um, but um, one kind of solution which we thought was rather good is the Australian government's no jab, no pay policy, where um, people are perfectly free to conscientiously object to their children being vaccinated. However, they are uh, a range of family and um, uh, childcare benefits are withheld from them which um, I'm told uh, are worth up to $15,000 a year. And uh, we think that is a rough and ready, um, but uh, you know, on the right track, um, 
a way in which the conscientious objector can make up to the community for uh, imposing risks on the community. You said for, for severe or highly contagious diseases, if the population rate of conscientious objection becomes high enough to threaten herd immunity, the requirements for it would become so onerous that, that it would be de facto impermissible. How would that scenario unfold? What, what would it mean for the conscientious objector? Well, you know, I mean, I guess we're imagining something like a scenario where there's, um, you know, um, some kind of mass outbreak of an infectious disease and um, uh, so it'd be something like, imagine the Black Plague going on in Europe where half the population uh, are going to die um, unless we take severe action. And in those cases, uh, we'd effectively say to the conscientious objector, look, um, it's just too uh, difficult right now to um, acknowledge your conscientious objection. We, you know, we'd like to. Uh, we don't think there's anything wrong with you having a conscientious objection. It's just that um, at the moment, um, the risk to the population is so onerous um, that uh, effectively um, there's, there's no avenue for us to do that. Um, and, I mean, this sort of thing plays out in the military as well, in military contexts where um, the, um, if a country considers itself to be more and more under threat, uh, it will typically um, ramp up the requirements on conscientious objectors, so make it harder and harder, as it were. Would this approach decrease the health risks associated with conscientious objection? And, and if so, how would it be through deterring people from objecting due to the, the financial or financial constraints or something like that? Or would the, the funds gained through such a policy be used to help in, in other areas? Right. Um, very good questions. What I can say at this stage is that uh, the federal government regards the no jab, no pay policy as being very successful and they uh, reported as of the middle of last year that an extra 5,700 children were being vaccinated per year as a result um, and uh, so uh, that that is uh, surely a very good outcome. Um, there are also additional vaccinations from children of children who were certainly not up to date with the vaccinations. Now, um, a lot of the cases we find of people who think their conscientious objectives are actually not. And so um, part of what's going on, we think, is that um, some of these people who are simply not up to date um, may have in their heads the idea that they're conscientious objectors, but actually they just uh, don't realise the importance of vaccination or they've heard some hearsay about uh, you know, dangers associated with vaccination and not understood um, the, the other side of the story, the dangers of not being vaccinated. So simply by having such a policy, it seems that... Um, uh, many more children being vaccinated and um, there's much less risk to herd immunity. You and your other co-authors also argued that people conscientiously objecting to vaccination should supply evidence of their sincerity. Uh, what, what sort of evidence should, should there be? Well, 
again, this was uh, an idea we had from uh, the military context. So in the military case, a conscientious objector is expected to front up to a tribunal and convince them that they're sincere. So if you were, to, if you were conscripted and you were to say, um, look, I, I can't serve because, say, I'm, I'm a Quaker and my religious beliefs forbid me from um, serving, serving the military, um, the tribunal would um, look for evidence of your sincerity by looking for evidence that you had a long-standing connection to the Quaker church, for example. If you just become a Quaker the day before uh, <laughs> or the day after, mm-hmm. uh, you got the call-up, as it were, that would not be very convincing. Now, um, in the case of conscientious objection to vaccination, um, you know, I mean, the analogy is a bit strained, but um, what we'd expect people to do is show evidence that they um, understood vaccination. So they might be required to um, uh, go to some education sessions. Um, so, um, and that would de facto be a test of sincerity because we think a lot of people who um, uh, against vaccination have simply heard something on the grapevine or been scouring the internet and found something that's uh, been stuck in their mind. And were they to properly appraise themselves of the facts, they would decide that their objection is not serious enough. So uh, that, that's, uh, in a sense, a test of their sincerity. But, I mean, there might be other ways to test it. That's just, a, that's just an obvious one. Thank you for your time, Steve. Oh, uh, thank you for, uh, for having me.